Before we dive in to God's word, would you pray with me? I know we've already paused for prayer several times. I don't want it to ever seem perfunctory, like this is just something we do. We pray, then we do this, then we pray, then we do that. It's very important that we remember that this is God's word. This is not just another helpful self-help book. Uh, This is miracle stuff here that we're dealing with. So we want to submit ourselves to the Lord and turn turn our spirits toward him before we dive in. So it's in that spirit that we pray together. So would you bow with me? Father, you have said that your word is living and active, that it's sharp and penetrating, that it's like a mirror that reveals what is in us and what is true, that all of it is profitable for all the salvation and sanctification, all the, the growth that you want to see in us. You created the world, the universe, with your words. So we know that it is powerful, and we ask now that you would unleash your power through your word now among us. Please help me to serve your people very well, and help us to be moldable in your hands and shaped by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for praying with me. Before we dive into any specific scriptures, let's imagine something together for just a little bit. In the book of Acts, we see that when the Holy Spirit first came upon the church and Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died in our place for our sins, that he rose from the grave, that he was alive, that tons and tons of people became Christians right off the bat. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see that they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching They devoted themselves to the praying together. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. So the the word fellowship in the Bible means a shared participation in the Christian life together. So what I want you to imagine is if you and, and I and our church were fully and perfectly devoted to the fellowship. So just imagine what it would look like if if you and I and our whole church was perfectly devoted to our shared participation in the Christian life, receiving God's grace through Jesus and living in obedience to Jesus, if we did that perfectly together, what might look different as opposed to what we see now in ourselves and in our church? If that became central to our understanding of our reason for existence when we woke up in the morning. One of the core reasons I exist is to trust and follow Jesus together with my church family. If church relationships and endeavors always won the rock, paper, scissor contest of our schedules every week, if it always beat sports, if it always beat hobbies, if it always beat optional work, whatever it may be, if there's a conflict schedule-wise and I've got a commitment to something related to me trusting and following Jesus with my church family, that always loses, as opposed to the other way around. What would it be like if our relationships as a church family became one of these central priorities in how we spend our time and our energies? 
What would it look like if we were breaking bread together all the time, if we were in communication with each other all the time, encouraging texts, phone calls, chats, cups of coffee, walks, running errands together, opening our homes together, whenever we cook meals, cooking a little extra because you never know which church family brother and sister might be dropping by, our lives interwoven together in this fabric of fellowship that we see scripturally. And then the love that we share looking so good to the outside world. Non-Christians living in a world of isolation, alienation, loneliness, see this community of people who love each other like nothing they've ever seen before. And it's so appealing that the Lord is adding to our number day by day, those who are being saved, just like he describes in the book of Acts. If, if every time we came together, whether in the Sunday big gathering like this, or uh, when we are going over to each other's homes, we're always being introduced to new people who the Lord is bringing into our fellowship, people hungry and starving for the life that God has given us through Jesus Christ. Can you picture that? Well, that's what fellowship is. That's central. That's a central value to the church as God has designed it. Fellowship. My point today in introducing the topic of fellowship and the whole point of the sermon, if you only have the capacity this morning for one sentence to remember, is this. The Lord commands fellowship. The Lord commands fellowship. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't recommend it. He doesn't sort of float the idea of fellowship. Maybe consider fellowship as part of your life. Just give it some thought. No big deal. He commands what I just described. He commands fellowship. My hope is from this sermon, which is going to be all over the place in Scripture, no central text, my hope is that it will stir in us a renewed devotion to fellowship, like the early church had right off the start, before it got so distracted by so many other shiny things in our culture, that we'll renew our devotion to fellowship. And the logic of the sermon is really simple. It's going to be really easy to follow. I know I have preached some difficult-to-follow sermons. This one's going to be really easy to follow. Three points. First point, they're all simple. First point, Jesus is the Lord. Second point, we must obey him. The third point, Jesus commands fellowship. You can see the logic of it. All right, so first point, Jesus is the Lord. I think that we all know that that's what Christians believe. Jesus is the Lord. The word Lord means he has absolute divine authority over his people. Absolute divine authority. He has the authority to command his people. Now, I have something like authority as your pastor, but it's only the authority of sort of influence. I, I can declare things and say things, you know, but you don't have to like obey me. I'm really one of you. I'm a fellow sinner saved by God's grace. Jesus has absolute divine authority. A couple of passages to illustrate this. Mark 1, 27. Jesus' divine authority is what first stood out about him when people met him. It wasn't how nice he was or um, how sweet he was or his sense of humor or anything else. What stood out to people is what we see in Mark chapter 1, verse 
27. They said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. People were amazed. Who is this guy with this kind of authority? Another passage, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus' authority is the basis for what we call the Great Commission. The, the big mission statement given to the apostles is all about Jesus' authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to consider if they might want to act on some of the things I have commanded you. No, that's not what it says. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission is a Jesus Lordship Authority sandwich. I have all the authority in the universe. Therefore, go and make disciples of me and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. One more, Acts chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Jesus' authority was the basis for the apostles' whole ministry. All the epistles that were written by apostles, all that came because of Jesus' authority. It says, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Commands. Commands. This isn't language that we are real comfortable with as modern Americans, but commands. After he had given commands, and then on down, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Ordered. We don't usually think about Jesus in terms of lordship and command and orders. But that's who he is. I did a lot of nerdy work that I'm not going to uh, trot out before you here because I know it's hard to, to stay on track when you're hearing a lot of things read to you. But if you want to do some nerdy work as well, go through all the epistles and look at how they begin and how they end. And virtually every epistle begins and ends with language about Jesus's lordship and our duty to obey him. Those are the bookends on virtually every one of the letters in the New Testament. So go and do that sometime this week. The problem is, we all know that Jesus is the Lord. The problem is that many church people relate to Jesus as if he's the Savior only. Not the Savior and the Lord. We're big fans of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. That whole part that I've read a million times here about how Jesus did not consider being God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant in order to come and humble himself. And he humbled himself all the way down to death, even death on a cross for our behalf. We like that. We, we know we're sinful. We know we need Jesus's forgiveness and we can, we can hang on to that. But often we forget about the very next couple of verses which emphasized that now he is the risen Lord. And it says that every tongue will one day confess Jesus Christ is Lord. If we don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we don't know Jesus. We know some figment of our imagination. But the real Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And that's how he relates to us. It's like a bicycle. 
you're going to have a hard time riding a bicycle that only has one wheel. And you're going to have a hard time trying to live a Christian life with an imaginary Jesus who's only the Savior and not also the Lord. And I have to wonder how many church people are immobile spiritually, stationary spiritually, because they have this imaginary Jesus in their minds that doesn't exist. He's both. Now, I think anybody who goes to church would say, well, I have a high regard for Jesus, but that's not what we're talking about. You can have a high regard for someone and not realize that they are the Lord. You can see Jesus as an inspirational figure, but not obey him as Lord. You can see Jesus as an important historical figure, like Abraham Lincoln, but I mean, none of you consider Abraham Lincoln your Lord. You can see him as your counselor and comforter and therapist and take great comfort in his love for you and not acknowledge him as your Lord. And those are all false gospels. They're incomplete. I think a lot of people in the church have an identity crisis, not about who they are specifically, but about who Jesus is. His identity has been obscured in modern American Christianity in many ways. Now, some of you might say, well, I believe he's the Lord. That's why I try to be a good person. But that's not what we're talking about either. That, that's too general. Jesus didn't, didn't just say, y'all, y'all be good. I'll be back like parents with their kids when they're heading out and they're leaving the kids with grandma or grandpa or babysitter. You guys be good. He was way more specific. There are specific commands that the Lord Jesus has given his people to follow. It's way more specific than just be good. Be nice. Which brings us to the second point. So the first point, Jesus is Lord. If we believe the Bible, we have to believe that that that's who he is. He is the Lord. Which brings us to the second logical point. We must obey him. If, If we're Christians, if we're trusting and following Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, we must obey. There's obedience required. And again, we don't, we don't really like that. It's not, not naturally, it doesn't naturally feel comfortable to us, obedience language. But the Bible teaches, 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. He is the good shepherd. If he commands something, we are guaranteed that that something is good for us. Even if we don't understand it, even if it doesn't feel good right off the bat, we can be assured it is good. It's like lines on the road of the highway. It's like rules. If you're going to try to play a board game, you need these commands to live this life the way it's meant to be lived. His commands are what lead to human flourishing. In every human attempt to shirk God's commands in pursuit of joy, you always find despair. You always find brokenness. You always find that it doesn't work because his commands are the way we're supposed to live, the way we're designed to live. So I'll give you a couple of examples. He has commanded his people to avoid things like idols and fornication. He has commanded his people to embrace other things like righteousness and true life. He has commanded that his people be certain things like glad and reconciled to their brothers. He has commanded that his people not be certain other things like hypocrites and heathens. He has commanded that his people beware 
of false teachers and empty philosophies. He's commanded that his people believe the gospel. He has commanded for his people to abhor what is evil, abide in Christ, and accuse no one falsely. He has commanded that his people cleanse your hands, cleave to what is good, and come out from among the world. He has commanded for us to gird up the loins of our minds, to have no occasion, to give no occasion to the adversary, and to glorify God with our bodies. He has commanded that we repent of our sins, resist the devil, and run the race set before us. And this is just a small sampling. So this doesn't sound very gospel-y. You know that we're all about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's good news. It's not burdensome news. He said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He didn't say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you more burdens, more commands that you have to obey. But the commands are gospel-y. They are gospel-centric. They are the, the basis and goal of the gospel. Remember Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The gospel commission is based on his authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it leads to a recognition of his authority, teaching to observe all that I have commanded you. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's one of the most clear explanations of the gospel in the Bible. Many of you probably remember it. I didn't have it in my notes, and I won't go and read it, but it, it clearly says that you're saved by grace through faith, not obedience to commands. But then right after that, I am going to read it. It's not going to be projected. Why am I trying to remember it when I have my Bible right in front of me? Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8, it says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. Grace is a blessing that you didn't earn, couldn't earn, given to you. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, obedience to commands, for example, so that no one can boast. So you can't obey your way into salvation. But if you are truly saved, you have been saved into obedience. Very next verse, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So no, you can't obey your way into salvation, but you certainly can't be saved into anything other than obedience. That's, that's the whole point. Now, we've been regenerated, given the Holy Spirit and new hearts and minds, now able to obey and able to live the way God designed us to live. So the two go hand in hand. Which brings us to the third and final point. So the first point, Jesus is the Lord. Second point, we must obey. And the third point, he commands fellowship. Which brings us back to where we began. I want to give you some more examples of his commands. Each of these is straight from scripture, but I won't give you the references because that would be tedious and hard to listen to. But just listen to these commands that are in scripture. Be at peace with one another. Anytime you see each other or one another, he's usually, 99% of the time, he's talking about church relationships, fellow Christians. Be at peace with each other. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. 
have equal concern for each other, serve one another in love, carry each other's burdens, be patient, bearing with one another in love, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, bear with each other, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, teach one another, admonish one another, Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And on and on it goes. This is just a sample of the commands that demand fellowship from God's people. We talk a lot about a personal walk with Christ. Do you have a personal walk with Christ? My personal walk with Christ. And that's valid and legitimate. But your personal walk with Christ must lead directly to a corporate walk with Christ. Or else I have to wonder about the legitimacy of the so-called personal walk with Christ. And what kind of personal walk with Christ is it if you ignore all these commands? Our personal walk with Christ leads directly to our corporate walk with Christ. Jesus is the Lord. We must obey, and he has commanded fellowship. Fellowship is one of the richest blessings that is ours as Christians. It is what sets us apart from the world. It's what makes it so appealing to non-Christians, ideally. I see this growing in us as a church. I see so many examples of fellowship among us, and I'm so grateful for that, so glad for that. Every church is like every individual Christian, a work in progress, but we're growing in fellowship. The reason I highlight this today is not to address some specific issue among our church, but because we are about to present a new member And two years ago, we studied scripturally what it means to be the church, and we landed pretty pretty solidly on the importance of formal church membership as a spiritual discipline to enable us to pursue fellowship and obedience to the Lord. And that's why I wanted to read these scriptures and to refresh our memory of this. Let's devote ourselves to the fellowship. It'll go against everything our culture tries to conform us to. But let's devote ourselves to fellowship, in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yes, and we're so grateful for that, but also our Lord. And we're grateful for that too, that we don't have to chart our own course through this life and try to figure it out, that he has given us commands, that he is in charge, that he knows the way. And all we need to do is follow him. Lord, please help us to be obedient Christians, obeying out of changed hearts from your grace, not in some misguided attempt to earn your affection, but as a result of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.